Is anyone else watching Love Island? <laughs> I consistently like, love this website's like commitment to serious discourse and just bullshit trash reality TV. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk, and today we're again talking about the politics of the coronavirus and efforts to mitigate it. The number of COVID cases in the U.S. is surging, largely due to the Delta variant. During the summer trough, we were seeing 10 to 15,000 reported cases per day, but that number is now up to 60,000 and rising. 97% of the current hospitalizations and 99% of the deaths are among unvaccinated people, according to the CDC. So while there have been breakthrough cases amongst vaccinated people, the vaccine is still overwhelmingly effective at preventing severe cases and death. As of right now, 58% of Americans 12 and up are fully vaccinated, and the vaccination rate has fallen from over 3 million vaccinations per day in April to about 500,000 per day now. In response to the rise in cases, the CDC recommended this week that vaccinated people wear masks indoors in places with significant community spread. Nearly two-thirds of U.S. counties qualify under that CDC guideline. The federal government and some states are also taking measures to try to increase vaccination rates, particularly amongst public employees and healthcare workers. So today we're going to talk about what Americans make of the rise in cases and mitigation efforts, what politicians are doing, and how that all squares with what public health experts are saying. Here with me to do that are senior science writer Maggie Kurth. Hello, Maggie. Hi. Also here with us is politics reporter Alex Samuels. Hey, Alex. Hey, Galen. And elections analyst Jeffrey Skelly. Hello, Jeff. Hey, Galen. So, Jeff, I know you have been digging into some of the polling on where Americans' heads are at with this news. To start off, how worried are Americans at this point about the recent increase in COVID cases? I think the takeaway from the data that we're seeing in polling is that Americans are maybe moderately more worried. There was an Ipsos poll that showed an 11-point increase in sort of a concern about returning to normalcy and returning to normal life activities since May. So maybe that would suggest the concern is up in response to the Delta variant. But at the same time, Morning Consult has been tracking data on how concerned people are about the coronavirus in their community. And that's only ticked up a couple points in terms of severely concerned To me, that just suggests that people are, yes, a little more worried, but that doesn't mean that I think the potential dangers of the Delta variant have really struck home and have scared a lot of Americans more than they were already worried. Yeah. Where does the bulk of Americans lie? Is the majority with not too concerned? You mentioned the tread lines, but is that the majority of Americans? So I think the polling would suggest that in terms of who's like very concerned It's not a majority. It's in the 40% range of Americans. So on the whole, I think if you throw in somewhat concerned, yes, you get a majority of Americans. But the thing that's really been notable in past polling, which 538 tracked for a long time, um, was how many people were very concerned. And you saw that spike when things were a lot worse, obviously, last year and at different points along the way during this pandemic. So I think the fact that you're not seeing that number spike is indicative of People are worried, but they haven't really become a lot more worried yet. So politicians are contending with what to do about this. Same with public health experts. What are Americans thinking about, at this point, the possibility of new policies or mitigation efforts? 
From what I've seen, I think there is some appetite for vaccine mandates, not an overwhelming amount of support, but that's something that you've kind of seen an uptick of support in just as COVID continues to get worse. So there was a morning consult poll from July, and they found that about three in five adults said state, federal, and local governments, as well as employers, schools, and businesses should require vaccinations. And 77% of vaccinated adults said that the federal government should require everyone get vaccinated. Yeah, the Kaiser Family Foundation polling on this has made it seem to me as though people's opinions about vaccination requirements really differ a lot based on where you would be applying that kind of requirement. So most workers don't want their employers to require COVID vaccination, but more than half of Americans say that colleges, universities, and K-12 schools should require vaccination for students and teachers. When we're thinking about the unvaccinated population at this point, who are we talking about? So people 12 and older have been approved to get vaccinated at this point. I mentioned that number is around 58% of people who are vaccinated. So that 42% of Americans, who are they and why aren't they vaccinated at this point? Definitely a lot of younger people. You know, looking at the COVID vaccine data from the CDC, about 80% of people 65 and older have been vaccinated. But in the 18 to 64, so very large age group there, only about 55% have been vaccinated. So, and if you sort of break that down further, you'll see, in, especially in like polling data, people asking about it, that as the older you get, the more people are vaccinated, generally speaking. So that means in particular, I think a lot of people, you know, 18 to 29, 18 to 34 are still not fully vaccinated. So that's a group that I particularly look at, but also people, you know, in their 30s and 40s, up to sort of, you know, the mid 40s, late 40s, that age group seems to be the group that is particularly less vaccinated. There is also a partisan element to this too. You know, of course, not all Republicans are necessarily vaccine hesitant, but most vaccine hesitant Americans are Republican. And that's something that I'm also digging into for a separate story. But to Maggie's point about the Kaiser Family Foundation, they looked specifically at the demographic profiles of people who were not vaccinated. And some of the most common profiles of these people are age was one to Jeff's point, but then also Most people in this group were white. They identified as Republicans. They did not have college degrees and they were most likely to be based in the suburbs. Yeah, and I think it's also worth noting that in terms of the likelihood of being vaccinated, at least as like a share of a particular group, you do see that on the whole, white Americans are more likely to have been vaccinated than black Americans or Hispanic Americans as a share of each group. So obviously there are communities of color that are also under-vaccinated, and some of that could be down to access issues. Kaiser Family Foundation polling has shown that that Black and Hispanic Americans were more likely to say that they were worried about not having enough time to go get the vaccine or worried about missing work. They were more likely to be worried about those aspects when not getting a vaccine than white Americans. So I think you can look at that as also another thing going on here. That Kaiser Family Foundation polling was also showing that Black and Hispanic Americans were more likely to not know where to get the vaccine or not think that they were eligible for it as well. You know, part of access, I think, is also information and outreach. And I think that that's something that we're still not doing a super great job of. The other thing that I think 
that has popped up that I think is interesting is a lot of the reasons why when you poll people who aren't vaccinated about why they don't want to get vaccinated, a lot of it kind of boils down to the newness of mRNA vaccines. When Kaiser Family Foundation was polling about this back in June, late June, they were coming up with about 53% of the people who weren't vaccinated yet said that one of their major reasons was because the vaccines were too new. They also said they were worried about side effects at the same rate. And 20% of them said that it being too new was the main reason they hadn't gotten vaccinated, which is the biggest single reason why anybody wasn't getting vaccinated in that group. The last thing I wanted to say on this is among the unvaccinated population, there's a distinction between people who are just refusing outright to get vac vaccinated versus others who are taking more of like a wait and see approach. And the Kaiser Family Foundation found that those two groups are very, very different. So the former group, the group that's like, I refuse to get vaccinated. Again, they tend to be white, Republican, and between 30 to 49 years old. The latter group that's taking more of a wait and see approach, it's a bit more diverse. It included 39% of Democrats, 22% of Black adults, and 20% of Hispanic adults. And something that I found surprising was 72% of the respondents in this group were between the ages of 18 and 49. Okay, so with that in mind, understanding the dynamics of people who are not vaccinated at this point, how persuadable are that 42% of Americans? What are people thinking in terms of how close we can get to full vaccination? Well, I think one interesting thing that was turning up in the Kaiser data was that full authorization from the FDA is going to make a pretty big impact on those wait-and-see folks. 49% of them said that they would be more likely to get the COVID vaccine when that FDA approval comes through. Yeah, and going to that Kaiser data, they were looking at three big things that convinced vaccine skeptics to get vaccinated. And the three main buckets they found were, one, when they see millions of other Americans getting vaccinated and being safe in the aftermath, that was a big draw. The second was hearing words of encouragement from friends, doctors, family members. And then lastly, it was learning that if you are not vaccinated, you might not be able to participate in certain things that vaccinated people are going to be able to do. Yeah. And, you know, I think to Alex's point about there being two groups, you know, there's this group that's hesitant or taking a wait and see approach. And then there's a group that's very much like ardently refusing to get the vaccine. I think that First group, people waiting and seeing, you can convince them, I think, to get the vaccine. And there are other things. I, I know Kaiser also mentioned uh, another thing would might be having mobile vaccine units, for example, serving, you know, under vaccinated areas. That sort of thing could get people to get vaccinated. But the real challenge, I think, and the group that I have a difficult time imagining making much inroads with is that group that is ardently refusing because their numbers haven't really changed much in the past few months. Like the share of people who say that they won't get the vaccine or that they're very unwilling to get the vaccine, which, as we've mentioned, a lot of Republicans fall into that group, for example, or at least make up a disproportionate share of it. For instance, that group you're not seeing the numbers shift, which suggests to me that they're they're pretty hardened in their opinions on that. And so that's, I think, maybe the most challenging group. But if you can get a lot of those wait and see people to get vaccinated, you can probably break through that 70% mark that President Biden had laid out as a goal. You can maybe get higher than that. But that other group that's very ardently refusing, they're going to be really hard to get. I also want to come back to some of this data just a little bit, because two of the other things that stood out to me as things that would 
make people who are not vaccinated more likely to get the vaccine are stuff like providing free childcare during vaccination and to recover from side effects. If employers were giving paid time off for getting to a vaccine clinic and also recovering from side effects. I mean, we know that the side effects of these vaccines can be kind of all over the place. You know, some people don't have anything, maybe a sore arm, and other people really get just get knocked on their butts. And there are a lot of people in America for whom the space to get knocked out for 24 hours is just doesn't exist. And there hasn't been a whole lot of policy, a whole lot of politics around trying to make that easier for them. For the group of Americans that is more anti-vaccine than vaccine hesitant, where do these ideas come from? Is it kind of like a grassroots feeling? Is it through media consumption, through political rhetoric? I think early on in the pandemic, we talked a good amount about some vaccine skepticism amongst communities of color that was related to historical experiments or distrust of some governmental institutions, et cetera. This group that we're talking about now, is it similarly a distrust in governmental institutions? What's going on there? So I want to talk a little bit about this paper that Joseph Vicinski, who studies conspiracy theories and radicalization politics, that he just came out with this month, where he is using two national surveys from 2019 and 2020, and basically finding that the idea of polarization that we have, where like we assume polarization is a left-right, Democrat-Republican thing, but he's finding that there's two kinds of polarization happening in America. There's that left-right polarization, and then there's also a polarization around that kind of conspiratorialist, populist, anti-establishment politics and people who don't gravitate to that believe in that. And I think that kind of polarization is playing a really big role here, you know, because you're seeing, like, if, if you listen to people, if you kind of like read the rhetoric, that's the thing that's driving this more than the ideology of the Republican Party. Like, it's more about that anti-establishment orientation than it is about actual conservative politics. Yeah, and to me, that gets into distrust of institutions, which we know it is true that a lot of the polling data I've looked at, Democrats are more likely to, say, trust medical scientists or trust the healthcare system. But sometimes it's that the Republicans have an extremely low number and Democrats just have a low number when it comes to trust. So it's not that Democrats are hugely trustful of, say, the healthcare system. They just trust it a bit more than Republicans do. And so I think that, for instance, speaks to how that lack of trust in institutions might be playing into people's fears. There's There are lots of attitudes out there about negative attitudes regarding the pharmaceutical industry. There's also a lot of skepticism toward media that actually is across the board. Republicans are more likely to be skeptical of mainstream media, but Democrats also aren't necessarily you know, super trustful or have a ton of confidence in media either. And obviously media is the one talking about the problems we're facing with trying to get the vaccine out there and trying to, in a way, encourage people to get the vaccine by writing about the consequences of not getting the vaccine. And so I, I could see it sort of as across the board, getting at that anti-establishment sentiment that a lot of that can come from a lack of trust in institutions. And one of the things Osinski has talked about is that mistrust in institutions is not 
a crazy, unfounded idea. Like there are reasons we mistrust institutions. We talked about some of that stuff already. But he's kind of talking about like a different thing than that. Like imagine like capital A, capital E on anti-establishment, like where you are kind of getting into this like reflexive space where people are gravitating towards conspiracies, gravitating towards support for violence, gravitating towards support for outsider politicians who also support political violence and the breakdown of democracy. You know, like this is the kind of thing he's talking about. And he's trying to sort of pull it out from the left-right orientation because those two things are both there, but they don't necessarily operate independently. And you can get situations where in the name of pushing the left-right polarization, politicians are firing up the polarization around anti-establishment politics. Yeah. This was all really good data and research on where Americans stand on vaccination efforts and, and where we might be headed. In terms of other mitigation efforts like masking, which the CDC has made new guidelines on this week, and other things like even social distancing or banning some activities again, where are Americans' heads at in terms of how open they are to these things? So I have seen polling that does show some openness as it relates to masking. So there was a Hill-Harris poll that was released, I think it was last week, where 74% of Americans said they support a mask mandate if there were a local spike in COVID cases. And surprisingly, that included 59% of Republicans and 53% of Trump voters and 93% of Democrats. As it relates to social distancing, I do think there's less of an appetite for that and less and less Americans report doing this regularly. So I think Jeff at the top of the podcast cited that Ipsos poll and they found that 64% of Americans said in April that they socially distanced at least once in the last week, but now only 43% of Americans say the same thing. So maybe that's because vaccines are becoming more prevalent. I'm not entirely sure. But as it relates to things like social distancing, I do think there's less of an appetite to do that on a regular basis. There was a poll by Scott Rasmussen who found actually that slightly more people felt that the lockdowns that we had earlier on in the pandemic did more harm than good. And to me, that sort of speaks to the idea that if we did get into a situation where maybe lockdowns would be the best course of action, that you might meet more resistance this time than you even met when we previously saw lockdowns to deal with the coronavirus. I mean, hopefully, obviously, we don't get into that situation again. But I know that some European countries have had to go back or have had to at least look at lockdowns again. I think Australia has been dealing with very bad circumstances too. So, But it's out there, like if we did get into another bad situation with a real spike in cases and things were really bad in some parts of the country, the politics of a lockdown, an actual lockdown might be poor. Yeah, I think Australia and France, at least, have both had pretty big protests over going back into lockdowns, which is somewhat counterproductive to the goal of the lockdowns. Yeah. And in terms of some of the challenges of polling on coronavirus, because as we talked at length, some of the disparities in terms of reacting to COVID restrictions might have actually caused some polling error in 2020. And so when you poll these things, it's a bit tricky, like you might be reaching a population that is more prone to 
be enthusiastic about COVID restrictions or at least accepting of COVID restrictions. But it also there's a difference between expressed concern and actual behavior. In the Ipsos poll that you mentioned earlier on, concern has ticked up a little bit, but people's actual behavior in terms of the extent to which they're socially distancing or wearing masks and so on hasn't increased at all, even as some concern has gone up. So I would be curious to see what reactions will be like to the CDC guidelines and any further restrictions, mitigation efforts we might see there. I'm also really interested in the way that you have those polls, I think Jeffrey mentioned, where more than 50% of Republicans said they would support mask mandates if there was a spike in cases. But then you have multiple states where the politicians have actually made mask mandates illegal, even on like a city level. So like, that's an interesting contrast. And it makes me wonder a little bit about what happens to some of these state legislators and governors if they get into a situation where things are bad in their state and they can't do anything. Yeah, I mean, we've seen in a number of states either new legislation. I know in Ohio, for example, the Republican-controlled state legislature actually passed new limitations on the Republican governor, Mike DeWine's sort of his ability for like emergency response limiting his powers to some extent. And actually, there was a constitutional amendment in Pennsylvania that passed recently that sort of did the same thing to the governor there. And it's interesting that a lot of that has been driven, I think, by more on the Republican side of the aisle in terms of trying to limit an executive's ability to enact emergency or use emergency powers to deal with a situation like, you know, this massive health crisis the the coronavirus caused and so many states shut down last year. And and a lot of Republican politicians in particular have have pushed back on that. And even sometimes when the governor in question was a Republican. Yeah. To your point, Jeff, definitely in red states like Texas, there's been just a downright refusal to impose any sorts of new mandates. And I think it's probably because Republican voters overall are less likely to say that they are in support of things like mask mandates or lockdowns to begin with. But our governor, Greg Abbott, recently said that, you know, it's time for, quote, personal responsibility as it relates to masking and vaccines. And I think even in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis pledged that there would be no more lockdowns in the state as well. This is such like a messy place politically because personal responsibility and public health. Those are two kind of, I wouldn't say diametrically opposed concepts, but they don't necessarily, like the idea of like a public health program does not work on an individual by individual basis. And like, that's where we're really starting to get into problems here. I do really want to get into what politicians are doing and saying we've all gotten into it a little bit, but first... Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.
We've talked plenty about what Americans are thinking and a little bit about how politicians are responding to this new rise in COVID cases, particularly linked to the Delta variant. So what are politicians doing? We talked a little bit about Republicans. Maybe let's start with the Democrats here. What are the Biden administration and blue state governors doing? Well, at the federal level, I think there was news yesterday that Biden plans to announce that all federal employees must be vaccinated against COVID or be required to submit to regular testing. Yeah, and you're seeing some states run by Democratic governors like California and New York start to implement mandatory vaccine requirements for some or all state employees. And so that's getting at that mandate question that we've talked a little bit about. You're starting to see it a little bit. Also, some companies, uh, for example, have mandated vaccine requirements. So you're starting to see, I think, things move in that direction, at least among Democrats. And then also just some companies, too, that aren't necessarily political. There was a hospital in New Jersey, I think, that fired six members of the nursing staff that wouldn't get vaccinated. I mean, that kind of brings up the question, do these mandates work that the federal government through Joe Biden's decision and blue state governors are making? Well, define work. (laughs) I mean, like, I would not expect them based on like what we've seen with the reasons why people aren't getting vaccinated. I would not expect them to increase vaccination rates, but not having people in a nursing ward unvaccinated makes people safer. So it depends, I guess, on what your goals are. Right. Well, I guess maybe short of the either get vaccinated or you're fired stance, which seems relatively rare at this point. It's still mostly, you know, I know in New York State and New York City and in California and for federal employees, it's more of a proposition of get vaccinated or you have to undergo weekly testing or in some cases more than weekly testing and then also limiting essential travel for people who aren't vaccinated, requiring masks in certain circumstances for people who aren't vaccinated, and requiring social distancing in certain circumstances for people who aren't vaccinated. So kind of like you either get vaccinated or you're burdened in some way. Does that work? Those burdens are also things that are increasing safety for the people around them. So there's that as well. But again, I come back to those polls about why people aren't getting vaccinated and I don't know, given that and given the anti-establishment, capital A, capital E thread here, that that's going to lead to more people going out and getting vaccinated. I think it's just going to lead to more people being angry. So that's maybe for the anti-vax portion, right? But there's this other portion that we talked about that's more hesitant, maybe more wait and see, or just has difficulty with access. Is that kind of where these policies are focused? Well, one thing the Kaiser Family Foundation looked at that I mentioned earlier is telling people who are on the fence, if you don't get vaccinated, you might miss out on XYZ opportunity or have to undergo these extra precautions. That does motivate people who are on the fence to get vaccinated. When it comes to the politics here, according to Morning Consult's tracking poll this week, net approval for the CDC and Joe Biden's handling of the virus fell to record lows. What's going on here? Are people just kind of annoyed that the coronavirus is coming back? Or do they see specific deficiencies in how Biden and the CDC are handling this? I think with the CDC, the frustration seems to be around just like what people see as like confusing, ever-changing guidelines. And some of that is 
a preventable problem that is a CDC-owned goal. And some of that is just like what happens when science changes. I mean, this new mask guideline change, that's tied to science that is still in the process of being developed. There's unpublished studies that the CDC has been doing that they started to notice that vaccinated people had higher levels of virus that they were carrying around than had been the case with earlier variants of COVID and are kind of taking steps to do something about that, assuming that higher levels of virus that you're carrying around means you're more likely to be infectious to others. Because if you guys will recall, getting rid of the mask guideline was largely based on research that was showing that vaccinated people couldn't spread the virus around very efficiently. So science changes. And if you're going to follow the science, guidelines changes with the science. And also, the CDC has not done a really great job throughout this entire pandemic of being transparent and explaining that. When it comes to the situation that Biden is in, his handling of the pandemic has long been one of his standout areas in the polling. What's going on there? I mean, that might be somewhat regression to the mean, just approval-wise. You know, he's been president for a while. Things have improved to some extent, but things aren't maybe going quite as swimmingly now, and there's worry about this Delta variant coming back and at least a slight uptick in concern if, if though we discussed earlier, it's not necessarily a particularly large one so far. So, you know, maybe COVID fatigue to some extent. And so maybe that's pushed Biden's approval on the coronavirus down to some degree. To be clear, though, it's still like overwhelmingly positive. It's just not as positive as, as it used to be because he pulls better on his handling of COVID than pretty much any other issue. Yeah. So I want to come back to the Republican side of the equation here for a little bit. It seems like we've seen increased messaging from Republican lawmakers, governors, et cetera, that encouraging people to get vaccinated. You know, why is that? What's going on within the Republican Party right now and how they're viewing their efforts against COVID and the politics of COVID? Well, we know from research on like changing people's minds and strongly held beliefs that what they hear from elites within their cultural groups, within their political groups, is one of the best ways to make those changes. So I would assume that somebody in the Republican Party is aware of that data and is trying to play to that. Yeah, I've just found the change in tone pretty startling. I, I'm not entirely sure why or what sparked it. Part of it could just be what we talked about earlier. A lot of vaccine skeptics are Republicans and Republican lawmakers want to do more to convince their base to get vaccinated. It also could just be the Delta variant. We don't know too much about that variant and we're still, as we still figure it out, maybe that just sort of lit a fire under Republicans to take this more seriously than they have been at the beginning of the pandemic. I do think it's worth noting that this change in tone, or at least change in emphasis, might be a better way of putting it. It strikes me that in some cases it's been governors, uh, Republican governors, you know, Republican senator like Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader. But this doesn't necessarily mean that some of the more conservative Republican members in the House who have said a lot of vaccine skeptical or even anti-vaccine made those sorts of statements 
I'm not really sure that they've necessarily changed their tune all that much. So I think it's sort of a mixed bag. And I think it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here in terms of that messaging. But I have noticed that, for example, there was a lot of coverage of this open letter or whatever that Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's running for governor in Arkansas, wrote. And she was trying to talk about it being the Trump vaccine and this accomplishment by Trump and that people should take the Trump vaccine, which is obviously a, a political framing in that way, and try to build more Republican support for it. But she's running for governor in Arkansas. And so I think for executives, particular statewide officials, there may be more of a, a desire to get Republicans vaccinated or at least sort of push that message than maybe among House members who have you know, represent a smaller place. They're beholden to primary voters to some extent and maybe want to appeal to maybe a more extreme part of their party base than, say, those statewide officials do. Yeah, I mean, like to come back to the anti-establishment thing, it's not really been the anti-establishment Republicans telling people to get vaccinated. So again, we, we maybe have found another way to chip away at the people who are like, I don't know, maybe at some point, but it's probably another thing that's not going to do much with the ones that are really strongly against it. Yeah, I think in a lot of cases, the people who have been very vocal about getting vaccinated as the Delta variant surges, Republicans who have been vocal about it, were vocal about it kind of earlier on in the pandemic when the vaccine initially came out, right? I mean, you saw Mitch McConnell saying, I'm getting vaccinated, everyone should do it. There's been a lot of coverage of this shift, but it may in many cases be the same Republicans who were very vocal about it then are again vocal about it now as cases rise. Big encore. Everybody got jazz hands trying to pump up the audience one last time. Where do the bulk of Republicans come down on this? Is promoting vaccines a winning political proposition versus the alternative is a little murky, but it's basically like, you know, it's my health privacy vaccine requirements are anti-American, that kind of thing. I mean, I guess you can hold both thoughts in your mind at the same time, both think that people should get vaccinated and that there shouldn't be vaccine requirements. But the politics in the Republican Party are more divided than the politics within the Democratic Party. Where is the weight? I mean, I think the fact that you have 60% or so of adults in this country are vaccinated, and I'm the percentage among registered voters is probably a little higher since people who vote tend to be a little more engaged and are just probably slightly more likely to be vaccinated than just your average adult American. Knowing that and knowing that independents on the whole are more likely to say that they want to get vaccinated than not, and if you're thinking about the politics of vaccination, it may not be the greatest look to have a very hardened anti-vaccine stance, which might help explain also why you see statewide officials, for example, being more inclined to promote the vaccine than, say, congressional Republican who represents a district that Trump won like 64% of the vote in or something. I think that's a factor. It's being pro-vaccine in the long run may be better for you politically as a party than being anti-vaccine, but you're also trying to sort of walk a line there where you know that a large part of your base is skeptical, if not opposed, to the vaccine. I think we're seeing a little bit of that with DeSantis already. I think there was a Politico piece that came out pretty recently saying that some Republicans were upset that he was promoting vaccines. So I don't know if this will have any implications in 2022 or in future election cycles, but it is interesting to see that some of the Republican base just doesn't want 
politicians to promote vaccines at all. I mean, Tennessee took vaccine promotion out of all of their vaccine promotion and outreach for children. They just like cut the whole thing, like not just COVID, but all vaccines. And that, I don't know, that's going to have some interesting repercussions over the next few years. So I want to wrap up here by turning to where public health experts are at in this process. We talked about what Americans are thinking. We talked about how politicians are responding. Is there a consensus amongst public health experts in terms of where we're at, where we're headed? There seems to be a consensus among public health experts that going back to masking inside, even if you're vaccinated, makes good sense. I mean, they were honestly, they were split about whether we should have stopped doing that to begin with. So that was not particularly a surprise to me to find. I think there's a lot of split around how they feel about what the CDC is doing and the way the CDC is doing it. But the general idea of like, yeah, we need to go back and mask again. I mean, that seems to be pretty highly supported by the scientists. There was an interesting NPR article, Maggie, where I think a lot of public health experts were sort of dunking on the CDC for what they did regarding masking. And one of the takeaways from public health experts was that lifting a mask mandate should have been more gradual instead of just telling people, okay, you're you're vaccinated, <laughs> you're good. Yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, like we look at the way that those mask mandates were lifted and the way that the Biden administration framed it, it was kind of framed as like, well, this is the prize that you get for getting vaccinated. So where does that leave you when not necessarily inevitable, but like just a kind of normal process of like, well, maybe you have to go back and wear masks again. Well, now you're pulling the rug out from under people and maybe creating more resistance than you needed to because of how you framed that. How are public health experts thinking about where we are in the cycle of all of this? Is there a point at which we will see surges sometimes in America, the same way we see surges in flu infections, and that that will just become part of life and that we don't necessarily change our behavior in reaction to them? And where might that threshold be? Or do we think that this will go away? Yeah, I think there is consensus that eventually a disease like COVID becomes endemic in a low impact kind of way. But When that happens, I think is still up for a lot of debate. I have not seen any estimations that like, oh, we'll we'll be in like a casual, chill, endemic zone by X time. Like I have not seen anything like that. And I think that it's also sort of important to point out that like the flu kills tens of thousands of Americans every year. And so some of this benchmark is less about when does it kill less people and more like when do we stop caring that it kills tens of thousands of people every year, which is a weird benchmark to set for yourself. Hey, we drive a lot. Hey! And and cars are a huge killer. So, you know, I mean, it's it's all about like the, the level of risk people are willing to take, I guess. It is. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's an analogy to draw here to like old religions and new religions. Like all religions have mythology that's a little goofy, 
But if you've been around for long enough, your goofy mythology has gravitas. And if you were a new religion, just making up your mythology, it sounds goofy. And I think there's kind of that element going on with setting your risk tolerance for something new. You know, if it's an old problem, if it's driving, if it's flu, those feel like no big deal. And if you're trying to set a risk tolerance for COVID, it feels like a much bigger deal. It feels much more impossible and it feels much more like, what do you mean we have to be okay with people dying? We're not at that point with COVID yet in terms of it being like the flu. But I guess the question is, if we go through another spike, come down on the other side of it, do we reach that point? Even if, say, the Delta variant is deadlier, which I assume it is, uh, than the flu, you know? Yeah. I mean, in the polling, some people are already there. Yeah. I feel like I have plenty of friends that are already there. Well, and we know that it's going to get to be to an endemic level eventually because that's what diseases do. I mean, I'm sure at this point you guys have heard about what was at the time called the Russian flu in like the 1880s that killed just a ton of people, hundreds of thousands. And scientists now think that it was the ancestor of the common cold that we'd get regularly, like one of the common cold viruses that goes around now. So that stuff happens, but there's both a biological and a psychological element to this. All right. Well, as far as that psychological element is concerned, we will continue tracking it the best way we know how, which is with polling. We'll continue looking at the politics and public health as well. But I think that's a good place to leave things. So thank you, Alex, Maggie, and Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thanks. My name is Galen Druk. Claire Bidigary-Curtis is on audio editing and in the control room alongside our intern, Emma Riley. Benton Stevens is on video editing. You can get in touch as usual by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.